The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, where the historic and modern are equally valued. Hello and welcome to the Art Newspaper Podcast with me, Ben Luke. The haunting song that you're hearing is a Yazidi lament. It's sung by Aziz Tamoyan, a professional mourner who performs as part of the American artist Taryn Simons' An Occupation of Loss, which is currently in London after its 2016 premiere in New York. You'll hear my interview with Taryn Simon in a moment. Also coming up this week, we talk about the process of restoring a Renaissance masterpiece with a conservator and a curator at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. And I talked to Louisa Buck about this year's Turner Prize shortlist, which has just been announced. But first, Taryn Simon. In 2016, she created an acclaimed performance-based installation at the Park Avenue Armory in New York. An occupation of loss featured professional mourners from communities around the world who enacted their rituals simultaneously. The work has now moved to the UK, where it's being staged by the visionary commissioners and producers Art Angel in a dark, subterranean concrete space beneath Islington Green in North London. In this peculiar atmospheric environment, the mourners from 11 countries around the world, including Ecuador and Venezuela, Armenia, China and Ghana, perform on stages at the periphery of a three-storey pit, at the heart of which are two thin columns of neon light stretching to the ceiling. Simon spent four years searching for the right London space, and now she's found it, she spends many hours underground watching each and every performance. I went to talk to her at her hotel in Islington, just before she made her next journey into the darkness. Taryn, I wonder if you could begin by telling me when you first came across the idea of a professional mourner. Mm-hmm. Uh, I first encountered the idea of professional mourning in a, a work of fiction by Hanan al-Sheikh, who'd written Beirut Blues, and one of the characters in it was a professional mourner. And I just was sort of struck by this idea of... Um, this sort of merging of something very authentic yet manufactured at the exact same moment and tried to see where that existed in the world and contacted her and started um, exploring that practice in Lebanon, which is what she had been writing about and found that it had pretty much disappeared. And um, uh, as a result of... um, religious influences that didn't approve of it and then started looking into it elsewhere and just followed the research essentially for the last many years. I was going to ask, can you give us an indication of how long that process has taken? Uh, It's been in total up to today about seven years, but obviously in different uh, forms of focus yeah over that time and tell me about about the process of sort of convincing these people to take part because obviously you're taking them out of context out of their communities and into a very different context well the thing about a lot of these uh, performers is they do perform on national radio and on stage and also at um, private funerals and some travel Throughout the world, others travel more locally. So, um, London is perhaps a new context, but performing for a large audience is is not. 
And um, the process involved, you know, a lot of communication over Skype and the internet and um, sending footage back and forth of different performances and talking about what this would be and um, just a, a very long trail of communication. I was really conscious when I was experiencing the work of my own position within it. And there is this, I guess, necessary awkwardness that, that the viewer feels mm-hmm. in being confronted with this extreme emotions and yet knowing that it's a performance. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me about those kind of that sort of tension that you set up in, in the installation? Mm-hmm. I think the tension is set up um, primarily by the act itself because you can't call it performance and you can't call it inauthentic because so many of the performers are actually drawing on very real things, whether it be exile, genocide, loss of a family member. Um, everybody takes it from a different place to generate that emotion and then to shape other people's emotions using that. But it's uh, it does create this unbelievable discomfort because you can't ever settle. And um, it was that sort of disorienting uh, mind scramble that I was that I was most interested in, in, in creating. Can you tell me a bit about your conversations with the people involved in terms of have you gained access or insight into uh, their methods in a way or, or, or gained access into their personalities and what drives them to be able to produce this, these amazing yeah. uh, performances or as you say, not really performances, these amazing uh, emotional experiences that, that we behold in this installation? I mean, for the overwhelming majority of the performers, it's something that's passed down through a family line. So, for example, the performers um, from Venezuela, their mothers were professional mourners and grandmothers were professional mourners and children are now professional mourners. And so it's something that is taught and passed on. Uh, And that exists in many cases. In others, it's... Um, it's a profession that was sought as uh, a means of livelihood and some like I think of the performers uh, from China who are very interested in theater and um, and found this as a way to be able to make a living and simultaneously be able to practice inhabiting emotion on a daily or weekly basis yeah so there's not there's not one answer for everybody each case has its own story and then there's this other sort of hidden element which is the the documentation that went into all this extraordinary effort you you've put in to get these performers to new york in 2016 and now london in 2018 what role does the documentation play in the work? Is it? Do you sort of see it as having sort of equal billing to the physical performance, or is it? Is it? Is it a necessity that the audience somehow engages with that that stuff? It's something that you receive when you exit the performance, and for me, it was important to map out the 
bureaucratic realities that rest behind a work like this and um, revealing all of the intricacies of that process and the ways in which the project is curated by the government and through its acceptances and rejections and thereby showing the sort of hierarchies in art and culture. And um, so I give a very sort of uh, thorough walk through that process. In the UK, it involves um, uh, the expert testimonials that had to be submitted to su support each application to the UK Visa and Immigration Home Office and then the biometric appointments that took place thereafter and the, uh, the correspondence with the UK decision-making center that then determines whether the individual can or cannot enter into the country. And, you know, even the names of these things I find interesting that in the United States in the process that I documented, it's very much grounded in the, the, the results of a one-to-one -one interview. And your interviewer decides whether or not you're going to be granted the visa. And it comes down to this thing that feels very much embedded in chance and who knows what the ideologies and leanings of that individual may be and what's influencing that or if they had a bad day or who knows what. But um, And in the, in the UK, it was far more abstract, this UK decision-making center, and who knows what happens there or how that unfolds, but you just get a letter saying your passport's ready for pickup, and you don't even know if you've been accepted or rejected when you show up to receive your passport, so it becomes this big moment of reveal. And, and just even, the, we include the costs of that process and the um, the travel involved to go to these appointments and uh, just the sort of rigors behind you couldn't you couldn't have chosen in a way you couldn't have timed this uh installations appearance in london better because as you've been here in london the idea of the hostile environment for immigrants has blown up uh, very visibly we've had this enormous public debate about the children of people who came over on the Windrush which is this sort of seminal moment in British immigration history how how have you responded to that? Well I've been thinking about this project in terms of time and um, geography from the very beginning because when it when it first appeared in New York it was in the last days of the Obama administration and I often wonder, had it been just one month later, what would that have been? And what would the process of acceptance and rejection been? Would I even be able to have the installation that I had at that time today? I don't know the answer to that, but I'm, I'm doubtful it would have been the same, the same installation. And then uh, similarly here, it, uh, you know, it aligns with certain things that are beyond the performances um, control but also the I mean all of all of these things are reflections of things that happened before and 
and are going to happen again in different form. And the laments themselves are about all of these these issues as well. I mean, we have the Yazidi laments are about a, a history of exile and issues of immigration. And they're not about individual loss. They're about anything from Sinjar province to um, long, long ago. It's telling a story over a very long period of time, actually. Yeah. Yes. yeah. yeah. Now, did this work always, from the start, crystallise in your mind as a sonic and, and, uh, and performative installation? Or did you have in mind that you might make a photograph and text-based work, which is what you had been known particularly for up until now? When I first started looking into professional mourning, it was during the time when I was making A Living Man Declared Dead in other chapters, and I was thinking of exploring it for that. And it became clear to me at a certain point that it wasn't meant to be a solely photographic work or textual work, and that I wanted to incorporate sound because it was about all of these things that I was interested in. It was about being beyond language. So I had been looking a lot at image and text and the space between the two and issues of translation. And here was this thing that truly inhabited this inarticulate space. And um, to somehow be able to make that um, led led me in just a, a different uh, direction I feel like I feel but I feel like in so much of my work I've worked with pressed flowers I've worked with um, concrete I've done film I've done photo- I, I've primarily done photography and text and but the idea is 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 the root and I see very clear reflections in all of the ideas and then the medium kind of follows whatever the idea necessitates in my mind but is it fair to say that you've sort of been um you start an experimental process which is leading you in new in newer directions because you have two uh, a double show at um, mass mocha coming up uh, later this year which which t- continues this sort of performative experiment if you like yeah i don't know why it keeps happening it's not intentional it's just <laughs> where i at right now. I mean, this is certainly, I mean, performance, there's a perversity in performance because it demands so much, particularly this project, an occupation of loss, and it took seven years, and then it exists for two weeks, and it vanishes, and there is nothing left. There's there's a book, but there's, it's it's gone, and it feels, there's a certain insanity in that. We shouldn't give our listeners the idea that this is a kind of, um, entirely mournful or depressing experience because actually there's all sorts of different forms of expression um can you tell me give some examples of the kind of differences between the people that are performing well one interesting divide is actually um through gender where men in the occupation of being a professional mourner often guide through instrument and women more often than not are doing it through an emotional state and through singing and exhaustion and so the men in the performance are all playing instruments and for example um, Annie Ball from Ecuador 
He performs Yuravis. He performs at three to five funerals a day and has done that for 40 years. Um, and Yuravis are spiritual songs from pre-Hispanic times, and they represent the affliction that's characterized marginal sectors of the Ecuadorian population since colonial times, like exclusion, economic deprivation, and exploitation. And he's playing an accordion, isn't he? He's playing an accordion. They sound... Um, I mean, the the text is in fact quite complex and full of sorrow, but the sonic sound itself feels very uh, festive. In fact, he performs uh, he performs sound memories, so he's speaking for the dead, and it's often uh, a profession that sees a lot of sightless individuals performing these Yuravis because they're believed to somehow be able to inhabit that space where one could speak for the dead. And then there's a very different kind of performance uh, by the Yazidi men and and a man uh, who sings a a song I found flooringly beautiful. Uh, Like I I describe it in my review as like a punch to the solar plexus. It's so devastating. Um, Tell me about the way that the kind of instrumentation that he uses to support his vocal performance. That's called Kilame, sir, and he's, it's kind of a melodized speech, and it's primarily scripted, but it's a, it involves a deduk player, which plays at the same time as his lament, and then also separately, and he is, he's singing laments about exile and genocide and and a history of the Yazidi people. I know that you see every performance. So you spent a lot of time immersed in this underground space, uh, engaging with the performers and seeing every performance. Can you, can you tell me what that experience has been like for you as an artist? It's just one I don't want to leave because it does feel every day when I actually come out of there in the performance feels much more comfortable to me than outside and there's something I don't know I've, I've but I've also never been somebody who makes work and then just wants to leave it I it's I do the complete opposite I just want to be in it can you imagine that you will want to stage this work again or do you feel this is really a full stop I don't know I the th- the thought of not doing it again is actually a really painful thought, but I, um, it's equally painful to imagine doing it again. So I don't, I don't know. Taryn, thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> An occupation of losses in Islington, London until the 28th of April. Taryn Simon is also unveiling two new works and a show of her bookworks at Mass Mocha in North Adams, Massachusetts from the 26th of May. Now, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York has just begun its project to replace the skylights, which allow beautiful natural light to flood its galleries of European paintings. It means regular rehangs are set to take place over the coming four and a half years. One painting that will find its way back into the galleries after a long absence is The Entombment by Moretto de Brescia, a relatively little-known masterpiece. 
The work has just undergone a long period of conservation. Michael Gallagher, the Met's Deputy Director of Conservation, and Andrea Bayer, a curator in the Met's European Paintings team, join me on the line from New York to discuss the painting and the process of restoring it. Andrea, I thought we could start with you because I don't, I'm not sure many of our listeners will know who Moretta da Brescia is. So can you give us a bit of a de- bit of detail about who he was? Yes. Uh, Moretta was the leading artist in the city of Brescia uh, during his lifetime. He was active, let's say, from about 1515 to 1554, the year of his death. And Brescia is an incredibly interesting place in the history of North Italian painting, because it's between Milan and Venice, and it sort of picks up on both of those schools of painting, but makes something very original and unique to itself. Um, And it was fundamental for the formation of Caravaggio, for example, who grew up nearby and probably was aware of all of the developments in Brescian painting. So Moretto is the head of a very interesting regional school of painting in northern Italy. And can you tell me, I mean, how um, successful was he in his lifetime? Was he uh, was he uh, working in courts? Was he um, getting major commissions? He did get major commissions, but they were mostly for local people in Brescia, which at that time was part of the Venetian Empire, the Venetian Terraferma. So he's not working at a court. Um, and he's a painter that um, most that works above all for churches and is a painter of a strong devotional cast, which our picture plays into uh, in, in an important way. He also did go to Milan and worked for some important uh, patrons there, but most of his patrons came from the churches and the confraternities of his hometown. So can you tell me about the entombment then? How does it sit in his oeuvre and um, how did the Met come to acquire it? The entombment is his last major work. It was finished two months before he died. It's dated October 1554. And it was done for a very interesting organization. It was done for a, a disciplina or a confraternity that was attached to the church of San Giovanni Evangelista, where uh, Moretto had worked over the course of a number of decades. So this uh, this confraternity had two floors of a building, and this the oratory at the top contained this altarpiece by Moretto, his last altarpiece, as I say. It, it stayed there probably until about 1770. Then we lose track of it, and then it enters an important collection um, of the Frizzoni family in nearby Bergamo. They actually kept it at their villa in, um, at Bellagio. Uh, and there it was seen by a number of important critics in the mid-19th century, including Charles Eastlake, the director of the first director of the National Gallery in London. Uh, eventually, it was sold to a collector in Germany. And then from that collection, it went up at auction and was bought by the Metropolitan Museum in 1912. Very early. Our collection was still small at that time, and yet the curator who bought it was convinced that this was one of the major works of the 16th century that we could acquire. 
Now, it, very neatly, and I have to say quite by chance, this podcast also features an interview with Taryn Simon, who has made a work about mourning. And I think this is a really important uh, connection with this painting because I, I can't think of an image which takes you through stages of grief so powerfully as this Moretto picture. Can you tell me about the characterizations that we see in the picture? Uh, yes. First of all, you have to look at the inscription at the front of the picture, which Moretto uses. This is, let's remember the time this is being painted, 1554, where in, in the middle of the great counter-reformation years in Italy, in which the Catholic Church is reasserting itself against uh, Protestantism and coming up with new ways of expressing uh, their Catholic faith. And Moretto uses the inscription, for example, as a tool to get people's minds focused on what's going on here. And it is a, a quotation from uh, one of uh, Paul's letters, and it says, he becomes obedient even unto death. And of course, he's talking about Christ there, um, and, and Christ is hovering above this tombstone with this lettering. He seems almost propelled into our space. His gray flesh tones, the very beautiful depiction of his head. And then he's being supported by the, uh, the, uh, the Virgin, who is shown as an elderly figure, very interesting that. Mm -hmm. And the beautiful Mary Magdalene, who is weeping tears that we can now see very clearly, and St. John, uh, John the Evangelist. So all of the um, figures are holding him up, are supporting him. They're looking out at the viewer, but they are grieving. And that is what you feel so powerfully. And I would say a couple of things come together here. Um, it is the, the death of Christ, the sense that, as uh, Paul says, he has been obedient unto death, even upon the cross. And at the same time, He's exhorting, Paul is exhorting the community to stay together in a unified way in its meditation about Christ. So this is a picture primarily about mourning. And when you think that it's two months before the artist's own death, there starts to be a real uh, poetic symmetry there. Indeed. Now, Michael, tell me about the experience you had when you first came to the Met and you saw this picture and you described it to me as looking very sad. Can you tell me more about what, what made it look very sad? What, what was your, what your feelings in front of it? When I, when I first came to the museum, I mean, obviously I walked through the galleries and took pictures in and uh, with partly with potential treatments in mind, the first thing when I encountered the Merita was just the power of the painting. It was a picture that really spoke to me. I thought it was monumental, um, so it had, a, had a, a gravitas to it. But it was probably, of any painting I saw in the galleries, the one where its um, poor state of conservation sort of leaped out. I say poor state in the sense that um, the... Uh, the effects of discoloured old varnish 
um, really discolored and rather sort of in, in cases, certain cases, sloppily applied um, retouching and overpaint were very evident to me. Um, and structurally, it was obvious that the lining, um, that's the where, where a secondary canvas has been attached to the original support, was failing. And the, that the original seams in the, in the painting where pieces of canvas had been joined together to get the full um, scale of the composition were, were actually beginning to sort of um, press forward. So the picture was bisected. And... It, you know, I, I think if you if you're used to dealing with um, pictures in different states and being aware of condition, you so it's sometimes easier to see past that to the potential of a great painting, or if you have the 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 knowledge and connoisseurship of someone like Andrea, you can see past it. But for and I, I don't mean the average person in a negative way. I just mean for someone who doesn't have the benefit of that insight. A picture like that just is. Um, that's what I mean by it looks sad. It looks it looks diminished. It looks like it doesn't warrant your attention. It wasn't important enough for the museum to give it sufficient attention. That's that's the sort of what it feels like. I think subliminally for for, a, for an onlooker and. It, it clearly didn't register with many people that it was even there. I found that once we had it in the studio, even people in my own department, as well as supporters of the Met who are really um, you know, interested and attracted by paintings of this period, um, wondered whether it had come from store or whether it was a new acquisition. It just hadn't registered with them on the wall. Take me through the process of the conservation of this work then. What did you do to the picture? There's a lot of discussion of, of, of why we might undertake something. Um, then the, the painting will be documented um, in our photography department. Um, we, depending on the picture itself, we may we may start with something like X-ray, or we may do that at a later date. But certainly, the current condition is fully documented. I then began cleaning the painting, which was the gradual removal of the discolored varnish and the overpaints. Um, That was, for the most part, relatively straightforward. There were a few um, slightly more tenacious areas of of overpaint, um, old retouching, um, but but nothing too complicated. It's a very robust paint layer. Um, It's it's not a, a, um, you know, if, 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 for example, with a 19th century um, painting, you might really encounter issues of solubility. That isn't the case with with a picture um, of the mid-16th century like this. Um, In in sense, 19th century painting, um, you may have the problem that the solvents you have to use um, to remove um, varnish or later retouching could um, potentially affect the original paint layer because of the um, the nature of that paint layer. That there might be in the 19th century, they often mixed in varnishes to their paint, for example, and so you have to devise a method. Um, of doing that safely, which is, you know, can be complicated. Um, that isn't the case, well, it wasn't the case with the Moretto. So it's a big picture, um, it's time consuming. Um, and, you know, as you take off uh, old retouching and overpaint, um, the, the damages that occurred over the centuries appear um, often to. Uh, more clearly to people because they 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 weren't always aware that they were there, um, but overwhelmingly in the department and and with our colleagues in curatorial, um, we all were having a very 
positive feeling about what was being regained by removing this um, this later uh, material. Um, it was becoming obvious that the you know that the, the, the power of the of the color palette, the the three dimensionality, the fact that um, Christ has a sort of um, though he's cadaverous in color, there's a certain sort of um, heroic quality to this this muscular figure um the whole of the sky which had been um i think because it was so far off view that the the retouching there really had become overpaint it was very very broad and it had really diminished the emotional impact of this strange quality of sort of lemon buttermilk light that 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 moves across the composition so the cleaning was positive. I think for me, all the time, I knew that the, the, the time-consuming and daunting part was going to be the structural treatment. I did wonder whether I could get away with doing some sort of local consolidation where the seams were rising up and leaving the old lining in place. But after consideration, it was it was obvious this was the time to to, to remove this old lining and um, and replace it. Um, that process involves protecting the front, uh, taking the painting off its stretcher, and then the very filthy, tedious task of removing a, a, a um, you know a line that was probably put on probably towards the end of the nineteenth century. Um, it as soon as I started to do it, the the plus side was it was so obvious it was time to take it off. It was so oxidized, acidic, the the fabric that I couldn't even take a more than a few inches without it just sort of you know falling apart essentially this is that this is the lining so uh th- once that is done um i repaired the seams they the seam the the, the, the um, the canvas of the of the the original canvas of the, the entombment is constructed out of sort of um, three principal. I mean, it's, it's two very large pieces and three smaller pieces at the top, and um, they would have had sewn seams. When the picture was lined, as I say, probably most likely in the middle of the middle of the nineteenth century, those were cut away. Um, so what you had were, were sort of butt joined pieces of, of fabric, um, and it was important for me to repair those, put in new pieces of canvas where there were gaps, and um, really secure the whole of the original um, support before adhering a new lining on the back. And that process, uh, after that process was done, um, the picture could be restretched, and then. Um, fillings were necessarily replaced and then the process of retouching begins the retouching is probably the area of conservation that that has the sort of shrillest or or least nuanced debate about it in in public debate if you like in the sense that mm-hmm. it's created a lot of um scandal where perhaps there isn't much scandal or there is there's a lot to understand so tell me about what retouching is and what safeguards you put in place if you like in most cases, I mean, my favorite analogy is to say if you take all of the little damages that you could see after a cleaning and you were to pull them into a corner of the painting, it's a tiny percentage of the surface. But visually, it's, it's a, white, a level of white noise that you cannot filter out. And even people who are around paintings all the time, who see paintings um, in clean state and so on, find that very difficult. So 
Um, once you accept that figurative painting um, benefits from having those damages suppressed, there are a number of options of how you could do that. You could you could tone them so that maybe from a distance you um, were less aware but, but could see damage somewhat. You could use a technique like tratteggio, which uses sort of little parallel strokes, which... On very, very close inspection, you can find, but on normal viewing distance will drop away. Or you can do a sort of fully imitative method, which is what we choose to do in in most cases. The important thing to remember is that everything we do is documented. It's entirely reversible. That means that if someone came tomorrow or in 200 years' time, they can take off my retouching very easily without jeopardizing the original. Um, It's, you know, if you wanted to... Um, if you if you were writing about this painting and it was incredibly important to you to sort of see exactly um, where there was retouching, where there wasn't, we have the full photo documentation. Um, in most cases, uh, it's it's more of a, I mean, a, a thoughtfully applied mechanical process. If you have a little, you know, damage the size of a fingernail, um, in, in the, the surrounding paint will dictate what goes in um, to, to sort of make that damage be, be suppressed. Um, so in, in I would say the 90% of the retouching in the Moretto required very little invention. You know, you're, you're talking of a very, very large painting, something like 90-odd inches by 70-odd inches. Um, th- these things are sort of not complicated to do um there are there are a few areas that were a little more tricky um where where there was damage to um uh saint john's uh the lower part of his um nose and um upper lip um his hand a little bit um but you you approach it very carefully you 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 retouch what needs little invention and you work your way towards the pieces that maybe need a little bit more imagination. I won't ask you to appraise your your own work, but Andrea, tell me about your response to the restored painting. Well, I'm ready to praise him to the skies. So that's what I'm going to do. In fact, we should start in the sky. Check um, in the mail. Yes, uh, we'll start in the sky because uh, uh, what Michael has been describing to you is the process by which something that was really illegible, that you could not read anymore what the artist had meant to do and had achieved, was finally made, was finally reversed and made, and was then made visible again. So the impact on the sky is that this lemony yellow color that Michael described um, started to come forward, and we saw it in a quite complicated series of blues and grays of the uh, of the skies itself, and that. The beginning of that light flows across the site of the crucifixion and then over to the rocks and the tree and the clouds above the um, tomb opening itself. And it is an enormously hopeful and uplifting part of the picture. And the second thing that was so important um, for me when I look at it again now is that 
the breathtaking beauty of the color and the textures of the fabrics of the figures around Christ have a similar impact. The purple of Joseph of Arimathea's turban and the shimmery satin or silk of the Magdalene's gown and mantle and its color, um, that is meant to resonate very strongly and, again, is life-affirming, is about humanity, is about the luxury of our world. And that had almost disappeared as well. So this was a, a situation in which conservation didn't just help us see the picture, it revealed a whole new picture to us. Andrea and Michael, thank you both so much. Thank you, and come and see the picture. Thank you very much. You can see the entombment in the Metropolitan Museum's galleries now. And you can read my interviews with Michael and Andrea in the April edition of the art newspaper. Finally this week, the Turner Price shortlist has just been announced. I was at the announcement of this year's shortlist with Louisa Buck, our contemporary art correspondent, and here's our instant response. Louisa Buck and I have just stepped out of the Turner Prize 2018 shortlist announcement at Tate Britain and I can tell you that the four shortlisted artists for this year's Turner Prize are Forensic Architecture, Naeem Mahayman, Charlotte Proger and Luke Willis-Thompson. Louisa, what's your reaction to the shortlist? Well, it's a serious, hardcore shortlist dealing with big geopolitical issues. It's very much about the world we live in and the vexed, problematic, difficult world we live in. This is art that's actually taking politics by the throat and engaging with it. You could argue all art is political, but this art, all four artists, in their different ways, are more overtly political than others in previous shortlists. Forensic architecture are a case in point, aren't they? Because this is stuff that is dealing... I mean, it's, it's, it's that political that is actually directly implicating courts of law relating to geopolitical issues, relating to things like uh, refugees, and, and um, they work directly with NGOs, for instance. Well, they are a collective of architects, but also journalists, philosophers, um, a, a whole range of different disciplines within, and they actually use the practice of architecture, the technologies around architecture, all the multifarious things you use to put a building together to investigate crime scenes, to investigate injustices, um, investigate terrible things that have happened, truths that have been covered up. So they're basically engaging with the fact we live in a world that's glutted with images, glutted with information, but that information is often, I hate to use the word, fake news or, or necessarily obfuscating, and they go at it with, with their name forensically, whether it's engaging with particles of explosions, whether it's collating iPhone footage over, over a bombing, whether it's investigating the fact that a, a police officer was present at the assassination or the, 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 the killing of, of, an, of an immigrant in a cafe but said that he never saw anything and to prove that he actually did see something. I mean, they're proving, 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 uncovering, uncovering, uncovering in ways that are multifarious and incredibly important. There's another artist who's dealt directly with something which has become a sort of big news story and connected to our sort of technological age in Luke Willis-Thompson. He's done a film portrait of Diamond Reynolds. And Diamond Reynolds was this woman who witnessed her partner being shot by a policeman and then documented that on Facebook Live. And uh, Luke Willis-Thompson then makes what he calls a sister portrait. In other words, a very still portrait, a portrait which absolutely reflects... Uh, Diamond Reynolds' dignity and this is very much again a reaction to our news cycle to the idea that somebody could put on Facebook Live the uh, 
the killing by a policeman of a black man in America. So Donald Reynolds gets known for this footage of her, obviously in deep distress, immediately after the fatal shooting of, of her partner. Um, so this is how she's known, this is her image. So this is, as, as, he, as Luke Willis Thompson says, the sister image, where she's portrayed here stationary. It's beautiful, 35mm static portrait of her. She completely controlled how her image was presented. There's two views of her, large scale. She's like a movie star goddess in beautiful black and white, just standing there, just, just her head and shoulders, stationary. It's utterly dignified, utterly calm, utterly composed. She's owning her image, and her image is how she wants it to be. So it's a classical portrait. All you hear is the clattering of the film through the projector, and so it's a very classical portrait. A very beautiful portrait, but also, of course, a completely politically relevant one. Now, Charlotte Project also uses uh, mobile technologies. She uses an iPhone, and it's interesting that one of the things that was really um, prevalent in the press conference that we've just been in was this notion that Charlotte has described of the iPhone being like a prosthesis, like part of her body or an extension of it. Because, of course, we are all welded to our iPhones now. They do become almost parts of our bodies. So, yes, her films are shot on iPhone from her perspective, the landscape unfolding, we see bits of her body, but also she very much works with film as well. So I don't want it just to seem like she only ever uses her iPhone. She's very aware of the medium of film. Another of the pieces that she was shortlisted for, the Stony Marlin Trail, she actually shows bits of archive footage cut with iPhone footage. There's pixelation, there's, there's voiceovers. So she's very much talking about the way in which film is a medium and a material as and a part of our landscape unfolding, and a part of our bodily experience. So, and also about, about, about our shifting identities. You know, we portray ourselves through our iPhone, we represent ourselves through our iPhones, and she's, her work is much about the way in which we have multiple identities. Hers is also talking about the notion of queer identity, shifting gender, shifting perception of self. So it's very political, but also very lyrical. It's an absolutely beautiful film, the Bridget film, taking as its name a Neolithic goddess who had many names through many phases in her lives, and nobody really knows what her real name was because there is no such thing as a real name so that's very political in a way that's very oblique as well now Naima Hyman is an artist who many people who came who saw Documenta last year in Castle and Athens came back raving about lots of curators talking about him he made a film which is his first fictional film which was set in a sort of uh, post-apocalyptic landscape of this figure in a, who, had, who had been in this uh, disused airport for a decade writing letters and posting them apparently to nobody. Again, we're talking about lyricism but we're also talking about big geop- geopolitical issues. He talks about failed utopias, about the notion of, of, of post-colonial lack of identity, of course, you know, the whole notion of people shifting from one country to another, one landmass to another is massively topical at the moment. And yes, but he makes a fiction about it. It is an art work after all. It's not a documentary about immigrants and migrations, but he very much talks about histories and how we all carry our different histories, whether they're geopolitical or personal or subjective. The source material apparently for this film about the guy in the airport was about his father being stranded in a Greek airport for nine days because he lost his passport. So so often with all these artists, I think, you know, there's a highly personal response as well as a much broader national, international and geopolitical one, and that's what makes it art. So if we look at this from a distance and we look at these four artists, of course we start, the idea of an exhibition starts to crystallise in our heads and I can imagine lots of black boxes, lots of film and video. It's going to be um, a quite a demanding show, I think, for an audience. It's going to be a show that you, know, you can't just drift by and let something pretty pass across your retina. No, you've got to sit there and you've got to engage with it. I mean, I would say that forensic architecture, who I massively admire, but I do find their work 
frankly, much more accessible to read about or to experience online than their current ICA exhibition, which is incredibly dense and theoretical and takes a lot of unpicking to do, even though they're such highly emotive subject matters. So it's often difficult sometimes to make the leap into art forms. In their case, for example, I mean, certainly, you know, Luke Willis Thompson in his portrayal of Diamond Reynolds does encapsulate many, many complex issues. Um, whether we're going to see that piece in the exhibition or not, I do not know. I hope so. so. I hope so, too. Um, and I think Nahim Mohamed, too, I'd like to see his documenta piece, which I have to confess I missed, so I'd like to see that. But I think it is going to be lots of black boxes. It's going to be lots of engaging. But we live in difficult times, and these are complex, multi-layered artworks that I think reflect that. We don't want a simplistic, finger-wagging, didactic approach. I think it's good that these art- artists are dense, complex and political and force people to engage because we have to engage with what's going on at the moment. I'm conscious that we're, we're seeing the Turner Prize shifting year after year as it grapples with new technologies. The, the, the availability of new technologies, the way that artists are using them, means that the curators of the Turner Prize show every year are having to grapple with new ways of presenting it. And it's really interesting what you say about forensic architecture because I agree with you, the ICA show is, tr- is, is not particularly successful as, in terms of its staging, in terms of the experience as a visitor. I wonder how much we should expect art to work in art galleries these days because they work make works tremendously online should, do we need artists to make art that does work in galleries or or, or are we in a, at a moment where art can exist in lots and lots of different places and, ne- and the gallery isn't necessarily the most important I think that varied ecosystem certainly has to be acknowledged more and I think you're absolutely right forensic architecture who I massively admire would almost you know want, want, want to actually win the crown of the Turner Prize because what they do is so important but it's about communication it's about communicating that and if your preferred means of communication isn't within a conventional gallery but is online or within a kind of literary or, or, or a podcast or whatever then I think you know, that has to be the case we do live in a world where there are incredibly broad and varied notions of artworks and indeed highly mobile artists highly mobile sense of, of where art can be placed and also where to see it I mean how interesting that Documenta this major major art event, which took place in two different venues, has been the site for, for, for two of the artists here. And also, let's not forget the fact that you know, forensic architecture are a collective made up of people from all over the world who've chosen to come and live in the UK. You know, artists have different origins. Luke Willis-Thompson originated from New Zealand. You know, you've got these very broad senses of, of the whole world is such a mobile, fluid place. And this Turner Prize, I think, really, re- really represents that. I really feel like this short list, list is a sort of challenge to Brexit Britain, isn't it? You've got... You, I mean... Strikingly, forensic architecture are funded by the European Research Council. That was founded by the European Commission. They are made up of lots of artists who are EU nationals. I'm just conscious that this may be one of the last moments where forensic architecture could actually even be shortlisted for the Turner Prize because it's an ex- because they will they might have to relocate after Brexit. It's, it's amazing how politics is not just the subject to these people work, people's works; it's happening to them. You know? Well, I think that's absolutely true, and it's a cause for huge concern, obviously across many sectors, but certainly within the, within the cultural communities, we're all desperately worried about this because this closing down of, of the very the very kind of openness that we need to have cultural exchange and stimulating artworks being being made and stimulating conversations being had, as you say, does seem to be under threat. And this Turner Prize shortlist certainly reflects how crucial it is that there are these channels that remain open and remain full of, full of discourse and dialogue. Well, I think it's going to be a really interesting exhibition. Perhaps we can reconvene when it opens. Louisa, thank you so much. Thank you. The Turner Prize is at Tate Britain in London from the 25th of September and the winner is announced in December.
And that's it for this week. You can let us know what you think on Facebook or Twitter at The Art Newspaper and follow us on Instagram at theartnewspaper.official. See you next week. Thanks very much for listening. <laughs>